There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best fully functional GPS when you're out of service. Offline maps allow you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. All right, everyone, we're joined today by our, our first ever should have done this a long time ago. Our first ever genuine uh, meat scientist, Chris Calkins. Do you go by, is that right? Meat scientist? Is that cool to say? Yeah, absolutely. That's the right way to do it. Let me test your knowledge to find out if you're legit. Do you know what a Warner, I think it's called a Warner Bruntler shear force test is? Well, it's a Warner Bratzler. <laughs> Ken Warner and Lyman Bratzler decades ago uh, created a objective tenderness machine, and uh, it was that shear force machine you're referring to. Okay. Did I pass? So you passed, but let me ask you this question. How many holes does that thing punch into the stake? That's uh, it's up to the operator, but typically we would expect to get six cores from a regular beefsteak, for example. Uh, in smaller animals, you have to get by with fewer cores and more steaks. Okay, good. We'll proceed now. Now I now I have faith that, that Corinne found us the right meat scientist. <laughs> uh, what is like? First off, tell us like what what a, what is a meat? What is a what is meat science? And how does one, you know, get there? 
It's been an interesting journey to become a meat scientist. Uh, I was uh, involved in agriculture as a high school student in the state of Washington. Had a really cool high school ag teacher who was a lifetime mentor for me. And uh, I was lucky enough as a senior in high school, I served as uh, state future Farmers of America president, state FFA president. And that same time he went to Texas A&M to work on a, a master of science in meat science. And I always thought I was gonna be a veterinarian, but uh, I packed everything in the car, drove to Texas. And uh, the day I got there, I got a job in the meat lab and I liked it well enough. Uh, apparently I've never left since then, so. And you eventually went on and got a, like what, what is your, you have a PhD, like what is it, what is a, what was your dissertation? Like what, what sort of, like how do you narrow in on this super broad meat science category and find your personal, you know, expertise? Well, that's a, that's a great point because the field of meat science is really quite broad. That is everything from the live animal all the way through to the, to the products that we eat. And my dissertation had to do with the enzymes in meat that break up proteins, in other words, the tenderization process. And I have uh, built my career looking at quality, uh, particularly eating quality characteristics of meat. How much, how familiar familiar are you with um, kind of like layman perspectives about meat, right? Like you have to, in conversations with people or in restaurants or backyard barbecues, you have to hear a lot of like theories about why this is that way that, that are way off. And if you, I don't know if you hang out with hunters or not, but you'd probably get inundated with screwball theories about what is the way it is or why certain things are this way and why they're that way. It, yeah. It becomes a compulsion really to, uh, try and set the record straight, make sure everybody understands <laughs> what we're talking about. So I'm, I'm a, in addition to having a 70% of my time is spent on research, but the other 30% is spent on teaching. So I teach both undergraduate students as well as uh, master and, and doctoral students as well. Yeah. Let me hit you with a, okay. Spencer's going to hit Spencer Newharth, our very own special Spencer Newharth, is now going to hit you with. Um, this is probably the question we get the most. And this is a wild game question, but I'm sure it has so many parallels to domestic production that you'll know exactly what we're talking about. But this is sort of the leading hunter based wild game problem question. How would you put it, Spencer? Do stressed out animals taste worse? <clears throat> and can that stress be a factor of something like the rut for a white-tailed deer or an elk um, or from a bad shot where a deer is hit and then it runs a mile and it lays there for four hours and slowly dies? Can a stress like that or the adrenaline make them taste worse? That initial burst of adrenaline does not have a real big impact. But if it's around for very long, in other words, if we have longer term stress, like the rut, for example, uh, then absolutely there are metabolic changes that take place in the meat 
that will impact the eating quality of that product. I'd be happy to explain that further, but Please. I don't know how deep you want to go. No, dig in, man. We want to go way deep. <laughs> awesome. So uh, think about what we know is the, the way the body stores energy um, is through glycogen initially. And then that turns, we also store energy as fat. But that glycogen is used to provide the short-term burst of energy we need when an animal, for example, is running. Now, it turns out that once that animal's been harvested, that glycogen gets converted to acid in the muscle. It becomes more acidic. We would say it has a lower pH. That's normal. That's good. That's what we're all used to with all of the muscle foods that we eat is that normal pH decline that occurs when an animal is harvested. The problem is when you get that burst of adrenaline or you spend five days at the rut running around acting like a teenager and not eating and all the rest of that, we exhaust the glycogen stores in the animal. And when that happens, that pH does not drop, it does not become acidic, and we get all kinds of weird, uh, strange flavors, and the texture is different, it's dark, it's sticky. Most people find that kind of product not very desirable. And the time course of that really depends on how much stress the animal has and how long it takes place. So Spencer, your question about four hours and a, a long, slow death, uh, that's probably long enough to have an impact on that animal. If that animal is injured in the wild, say it breaks a leg or something, then all of those kinds of things will give long enough stress. Glycogen is exhausted. pH stays high. Meat doesn't taste very good. You know, a, a good extreme of this that I think about is uh, one time uh, my brother, a rancher that my brother and his friends know, told them about a bull that he had that had broken its leg down in the bottom of some coulee and had been down there a while and he couldn't find it and eventually found it and he told those guys if you want to go get it you can have it this thing is huge you know and they went down and got it and my brother comes home and makes a steak out of it and i mean it was probably already a bull it was already a bull so that's probably a couple strikes against it but I mean, yeah. I'm not exaggerating when I say that it, it was unchewable. Yeah, it's um, most of the stress-related response has to do with taste, has to do with flavor. The fact that it was a bull and an older animal, that's what makes it tough. But uh, we have people who contact us regularly with a very similar situation. An animal is injured, it's been hanging around for quite a while, and they wonder, can they turn it into steak or ground beef. And uh, it's it's just a different taste. And so that's a pretty common uh, complaint that people have. Homet, so the toughness is toughness isn't related to stress. Not so much that the stress has a far bigger impact on flavor than it does on toughness. All right. So what are the things that make certain things like what makes certain animals inexplicably tough? Like you know, I mean, it, yep. you could sometimes you'll you'll have guys get a whatever, like you get, you know, a buck or someone will get, you know, ten bull elk and they're all great, and the eleventh one is just chewier in hell. Um, right. We'll often say like, "Oh, he must have been stressed." Would be our that'd be like a thing that we would say when when you encounter that super tough animal. 
there's, there's really three things broadly that impact toughness. One has to do with how contracted that muscle cell is, how much integrity there is in the muscle cell. Uh, the second thing has to do with something called connective tissue. That's that white silvery tissue on the outside of the meat. And then the third part is fat. And so anything we do to impact any of those three things can impact uh, tenderness. Uh, let me ask you one more, then Spencer's got to ask you a good question. Uh, do you ever have you ever had occasion to eat like soup, like to eat deer meat right away, or, or any kind of meat? Okay, so whatever. Like if you if you get an animal and then cook it within a couple hours, it's like it's kind of like a divisive taste. Like some people like it, some people don't like it. It definitely has a different texture. There's something yeah. in it that seems almost like a metallic taste that then that's gone in a day or two. Right. So we know that uh, once you, once you shoot an animal and enough time passes, it gets rigid, it gets stiff. We call that rigor mortis, right? And that process is the process of all of the energy in the muscle dissipating uh, once the heart stops beating and you've, you've just stopped blood flow. And that is actually a toughening process. In fact, once you get to that point, that's about as tough as that meat's going to be. We can then hang it longer in a cooler or outside in cold air, and that allows the meat to become more tender. But if you get a hold of that meat before it's into rigor mortis and you cut it, that cutting stimulates contraction you put it on a hot pan or a hot grill that stimulates uh, that contraction and you can get meat that's literally too tough to chew. I, you know, every now and then somebody says, oh, I love to shoot an animal, then immediately go cut a steak and go eat it. To me, that's disrespectful of the animal because really? you, you, are, you are eating that meat in the worst possible conditions to have a good eating experience. If you'll at least let that animal go through rigor mortis to get stiff, uh, then you're going to have a far better eating experience. Huh, okay. okay, Spencer, hold tight. <laughs> Spen all right, I don't understand what you're saying because I like explain the rigor mortis timeline. I would think that when right. it's in rigor, it's all stiffened up. Right, but before rigor, it has the potential to contract. And if you stimulate the animal by, um, by, by cutting the meat or more importantly, by putting it on a hot skillet, it will stiffen up. It will shorten more than usual. And if you wait till the animals, okay, so let's say there's an animal, and, and, like, you, whatever, you're in a slaughterhouse or whatever, you, you kill an animal. There's an animal that just dies, okay? Struck by, I don't yeah. want to say struck by lightning. It just dies. Yeah. At first, you can wiggle it all around. You can grab its arm and shake it. Yes. Then a while later, you can't. Then a while later, you can. So during the period when it's stiffened up, that is more tender than before it stiffens up? If you could cook it without allowing it to contract, it would be tender. But you cannot do that. The, when we cut the steak, we, we remove all the muscle bone connections. And so that muscle is free to contract. And so before rigor mortis is complete, 
that is a very dynamic muscle that can that can shorten and toughen uh, as you handle the product. Once you once it goes into rigor, then you're at a certain level of tenderness, and from that time on, beyond where rigor happens, it will just get more and more tender. Uh, I got you. The longer you keep it in the cooler. Okay, I'm mostly good on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so far, your answers have a lot of conviction, which is like what I would want out of um, meteors official meat scientists, right? But I, I wonder if you lack any confidence in what you're saying, um, knowing that like a lot of the studies that have been done and, and the, the literature that you're referencing has been on like domestic game uh, cattle that was, you know, been domesticated over the last 10,000 years versus something like a white-tailed deer or an elk, uh, a wild animal. They're just wired differently. And so my question is like when they're, Talking about stress, how is how is do we know that stress is the same to a deer versus cattle? And then you know all the rest of your answers, if they lack any confidence, knowing that we're talking about beef versus wild game. You know, muscle is muscle. I I do not lack confidence on the science. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and Spencer, we could get in an argument, but I will win. Oh no, I don't think <laughs> no, you got him all wrong. He's not trying to be pugnacious. He's just trying to, he's, he's trying to people at home are, so there's people at home in the future. Listen to this. They're at home thinking, yeah, what does he know? We're talking about deer. So he's just trying to clear that up. Yes. No, I'm just giving you a hard time. I totally understand your, the point that you're saying. Uh, the, I have, I have studied a variety of different species. I have studied product from around the world. And muscle responds the same way, that some of the timelines are different. And so, for example, uh, poultry, for example, a chicken, it will go into rigor mortis in an hour and a half. Uh, A beef animal might take eight or 10 hours before it's fully into rigor mortis. If you take a goat or sheep, they're in there in four to six hours. That's That's about what I'd anticipate for deer as well. So the, the biology of muscle contraction and rigor mortis and all of that, that's fixed. It's, it's going to happen in all, all of the different species that we're talking about. Now, we have to think about most of the time when you think about that beef steer, for example, uh, that animal's been neutered. And so it doesn't have uh, the access to all of those hormones that uh, 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 an intact male would have. And so the sensitivity to hormone fluctuations might vary a little bit from species to species uh, and depending on what sex or gender uh, you're dealing with. But at the end of the day, uh, the biology says um, all muscles go through the same sequence, the same kind of process uh, as what I've tried to describe. Can Can you tell us, explain a term I hear now and then I thought it was a red cutter, but Spencer convinced me otherwise that that's not actually a thing. And he was saying, do you mean a dark cutter? Like, what is a dark cutter? So when we talked about the drop in pH that happens normally when rigor occurs, uh, that gives us the normal color that we're used to seeing inside the muscle. 
if the pH stays high, then the meat is very dark in color. And so in beef cattle, they call it a dark cutter. Have you ever heard red cutter? I've never heard red cutter (laughs) (laughs) until about uh, two minutes. Uh, I'm giving up on that one. Uh, but uh, it's the it's the same way you can get that same condition in pork. If pork are stressed for too long, you can get, in that case, we call it DFD, dark, firm, and dry. And huh. so they're all just descriptions. That's how that you're talking about that. You just described wild, you just described wild pig, a lot of wild <laughs> pig pretty well. Yeah. So that, it, it, when you have a dark cutter in the, in the slaughter world or commercial slaughter world is it attributable to a specific thing that happened to that animal or is it just some percentage will come out that way no that's uh it it is it is a response to sustained stress but just like people some animals are pretty chill and some animals are really tightly wired i got you the the ones that are high strung, high stress, those are the ones that are going to be more likely to have the problem. So the same set of conditions, whether it's uh, duration or shipping or hauling or whatever, the same set of conditions will have a different impact on every animal, depending on how that animal responds to the situation. Yeah, I got you. There, there's a product these guys were selling. Maybe, maybe Spencer, maybe remember the name of it. It was um it was a contraption where you could shoot a deer and then run over real quick and hook this thing up to your car battery and, and zap it like how you zap them in a in a slaughterhouse. Can you explain uh why they do that in a in a plant? Why they zap them with electricity? Yeah. And then can is that even can can is it realistic that you could replicate that in the wild? Whatever the hell you're trying to get when you do it. Yeah. So let's let's first talk about what happens uh, when you apply electricity. You cause the muscle to contract, and and the uh, by the way, a car battery doesn't work very well because that's a constant, continuous electrical field. What you really want is alternating current. So the muscle contracts, relaxes, contracts, relaxes. As you do that, you're using up glycogen, you're producing acid, you are hastening the rate at which rigor mortis occurs. That makes meat more tender. And so from the, from the mechanism standpoint, it works. Uh, can we create something like that that could be used in the field? Again, as long as you have pulses of electricity rather than a continuous uh, contraction, then you're going to have some improvement is possible under that scenario. The other thing I would point out is um, when we we shoot a deer, the, the heart stops, right? And that's how blood is pumped through the body. So when the heart is no longer beating, we can't pump blood out. So um, uh, some electrical impulse will help get a little bit of that blood out of the system. Got you. Uh, and so that's the other side benefit. So what is the ideal shot placement for a hunter? In the head, in the neck, in the heart, in the lungs, 
in the spine? Like, w- what would be your top choice? Yeah. So, just again, in terms like, of meat, just in, we'll limit this to like in terms of meat quality and get out of the and not bog it down with room for error, right? Margin for error and all that. Exactly. I appreciate that because that is a, a bit of the question. At the end of the day, you you want the animal to go from being alive to no longer being alive. And a heart shot, a head shot, any of those will will affect that same consequence. And so from a meat quality standpoint, um, uh, other than damage to tissue and those kind of things, there's probably not real uh, a real big difference among those locations. Do you have you ever seen? Um, oh, I can't really. It's hard to even explain this. Sometimes when you're when you're skinning a deer, you'll find that there's like a you know that foam. There's like a foam between the. Yeah. Like a, like a bubbly foam mm-hmm. that forms between the hide and the meat, right? What is that stuff? Well, that's part of that connective tissue that I talked about again. Uh, that is a protein based structure that goes between the muscles and also between the muscle and the hide. Uh, no no damage, no risk, no concern on that standpoint. I m- I might mention though that. Um, we, we think about, well, if you've got that silver tissue on the outside of the muscle, you can always trim that off. But if you get a microscope and look at that muscle, that tissue actually goes throughout the muscle. And, and that's why uh, muscle from the leg, for example, is inherently less tender than a muscle that's from the loin or the back strap, because those are muscles of support versus the legs being muscles of locomotion, they need more of that connective tissue. So by and large, if you've got a, you got a piece of meat with a lot of connective tissue in it, you know, uh, slow roasting, uh, uh, put it in a pot and stew it, that kind of a thing is how we tend to cook that. Whereas you get the muscles that don't have very much connective tissue, the tenderloins, the back straps, all of that, we can make steaks out of those, throw them in a skillet, throw them on the grill, and have a very nice eating experience. What uh, what happens when? Well, first let me ask you this: have, have you have you had exposure to to your um, your piscivorous uh, counterparts like fish fish meat? Is that a thing? I'm, I'm not much on fish meat. I can't tell you too much about that. I'm are there sorry. people that specialize? Are there people in the meat science world that specialize in fish? Yes, there okay. are people who specialize in fish, people who specialize in pork or beef or poultry. Uh, yeah, we're, we can be a pretty specialized group. Yeah. So, because this one, this question about bleeding, let's just, let's just, if you know about the process of bleeding fish, you can speak to that. But what are you trying to achieve when, what are you trying to achieve when you bleed something? When people talk about like needing to bleed it out, like what, what are you really getting? That's that's a that's an awesome question because a lot of people run around saying there's all this blood in the meat, um, muscle, which is true. <laughs> muscle is seventy five percent water, right? Okay. And so, um, is that right? Really? Yeah. You have to think about what's the function of blood, and one of the main things is we carry oxygen through blood, right, on hemoglobin molecules. Inside the meat is a molecule that also binds oxygen, 
binds it better than hemoglobin actually. So it draws the oxygen out of the blood into the meat and it binds to myoglobin. And so when you look at meat and that meat is red in color, that's myoglobin. There's very, very little hemoglobin, very little blood in the meat itself. But because meat's 75% water, everybody goes, oh my gosh, look at all the blood that's in that meat. But most of that is myoglobin and water that's inside the muscle. So when you bleed, you're just trying to get rid of the, the, the bloods that's there. And probably the biggest real reason for that is um, it's a great nutrient for bacterial growth and spoilage. And so we try and remove that so that we don't have to deal with it. Hold on, you're saying that blood in the meat is lends itself to quicker spoilage? N- not necessarily. A meat's a pretty good uh, bacterial uh, medium for growth anyway. Okay. But uh, typically in, in, uh, in commercial animals, uh, we, we remove the blood just so that we don't have to uh, deal with that as we go down the line. Otherwise, it tends to, to drip and get all over everything. Oh, I got you. So once it's out, yeah. it becomes problematic. Yeah. Like you don't, you don't want it around. Yeah. Yes. I want to back up to dark cutters real quick. Um, red cutters. Yeah, yeah. Steve's red cutters. Like the obvious stressors are like taking a long time to die uh, and like not eating. But what are some of the not so obvious stressors that hunters wouldn't think of? Like is weather something that would stress out an animal and make their meat worse or like interacting with foreign animals, things like that? Yes, uh, it's a really good question, Spencer, and, and you're absolutely right. Just think about you or I, right? Anything that causes us stress causes that animal stress as well. And, and, and so part of that has to do with physical stress. If it's cold and you're trying to stay warm, for example, um, if you're, we also have social stress, right? You mix, you mix people up in an elevator and everybody gets kind of quiet and awkward. And, and, and that kind of stress also creates uh, circumstances or situations that can impact the animal. In the case of females, if they're cycling, then that hormonal cycle can create stress as well that draws glycogen out of the muscle. Why is that and stressful for them? Uh, it, it's, hmm, that's a really tough question to answer. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it just creates enough different uh, physiological responses to those hormones that that animal is going to need more energy and it's going to draw against that glycogen stores to be able to supply that. Sort of like nervous energy, if you think of it that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you never hear like hunters and fishermen complain about a spawning fish tasting bad, though, or a strutting turkey or anything like that. Is it just because like we're really ignorant or is it less likely to happen in, in poultry and, and fish? Uh, don't know about fish. In poultry, it can still happen in poultry, but chances are that we're, that's kind of what we expect. It's what we're used to seeing. And uh, the best example I can give you is uh, in poultry, commercial poultry, w- once they're harvested and you've removed all the, all the viscera, then you want to chill that carcass down quickly. And the way that happens in the industry is you take the, the poultry carcass and put it in an ice water bath. 
Now that cold shock before the muscle is in rigor causes immediate contraction. In comparison, you could also chill that carcass by putting it in a refrigerated cooler. And so you can go to the grocery store now and there are there is air chilled poultry and there's regular commercial poultry. And I'll tell you, there's a profound difference in tenderness between those two. Which is better. That, the air chilled is not as contracted and is far more tender than what we traditionally do with poultry. Are these labeled like things that we can identify in the grocery store? Uh, typically, the, the air chilled uh, poultry is labeled that way. The others are not. They're traditional, normal commodity product. If you had to look at what you know is done with, I'm going to ask you an equivalent question to this around around red meat, but knowing what's done in a poultry slaughter facility, okay, what would be the closest approximation that a person could achieve if they're hunting pheasants or hunting turkeys and they have a pickup truck with them? Like what would what would you do upon what, what like what would you do in terms of a timeline and tools in order to replicate best practices? Yeah, so uh, the, there's there's two big things I think. One is you you want to get rid of the the guts uh, as soon as possible. That's a that's a food safety issue. Um, if we have uh, feces or fecal material spreading around the inside of that body cavity, the sooner you get all that out, the better off you are. That's number one. Number two is, you, uh, and we've kind of touched on this earlier, but you you just give it time to go into rigor mortis before you do much more with it. And so you don't have to plunge it in ice water. You can allow it to go to rigor um, for an hour or so uh, once you've removed the, the viscera, and and you'll have a, a fine eating experience. It's when we go, I think, too fast. It's when we try and 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 you know get the animal and stuff it with snow, or we get the animal and 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 throw it in the skillet too quickly. That's where we get quality problems being created. Hold on, you're saying it's bad to stuff them with snow? Most of the time, you don't need to do that. Oh. And if, if you're, if you, if you got, say a deer, for example, and let's assume it's a heart shot, uh, as opposed to a head shot. So you've disrupted the internal organs, right? And, um, and so the best thing you can do from a food safety standpoint is to remove all those organs from the inside of the animal. Now, once you've done that, there's a chance there's some fecal material in there. And so what happens when you stuff it with snow? You've just smeared all that around. And as the snow melts, you've smeared that bacteria around on the inside. The fact is the animal's gonna chill out at a reasonable rate anyhow. Um, now, now, if you're dealing with a, a very large animal and it's warm outside, um, you know, it'd be nicer if you could cool that off a little quicker, but you're not gonna have snow around to do that under that circumstance anyway. So I don't think it's necessary to, to try and accelerate the chilling rate of animals as long as you deal with the meat in a timely manner after it's in rigor mortis. So are you saying there's such thing as freezing something too soon? Like if you shot a duck at 9 a.m. and you had it 
breast and uh, gutted by 10 a.m. and go on a freezer. Is that too quick? Ah, completely. And in fact, we actually had a had a former student in our department who went to work in Alaska and uh, they're harvesting reindeer when it was 20 below outside. And the problem they had is they they harvest the deer, lay it on the ground, and in 20 minutes it'd be frozen. Now what happens is when that when the meat thaws, then you get massive muscle contraction, way more than normal. So absolutely too fast to the freezer is not a good thing. The other dimension of that, Spencer, that you ask about, which is uh, interesting, I think, is that uh, it's better if you can go into rigor with the muscles attached to the bones, huh. because that, to some extent, that limits contraction. If you remove all those uh, connections of the muscle to the bone, that muscle is free to shorten up as much as it wants to. That's really interesting because there's a uh, there's a real debate in the hunting world around um, things like things like called the you know the 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 gutless method or you know various ideas around deboning things right away in order to reduce weight when you have to carry it a long way, and um, a lot of people will. And, and I've certainly done it myself, shoot an animal and then immediately debone it all and put it into bags. And I always view the con of it, the, the, the con to doing this would be that it just seems to create a harder time to sort it out when you get home. It makes more surface area for there to be hair and for it to get dirty. But yes. I never heard anybody talk about that it could even have a negative impact on the end quality in terms of toughness, tenderness. Well, and that is in fact the case that if you, if you bone it out while it's hot, you can compromise the contraction and therefore the tenderness, but you know, you gotta be practical. You, You can quarter the animal, for example, and most of the muscle bone attachments are still, uh, retained under that scenario. But if you're going to take your knife and separate every muscle and and open it up so there are no connections at all, uh, then I would say the longer you can wait to do that, the better off you're going to be because you'll be closer to rigor mortis when you get to that point. Spencer, was that you talking all about uh, how everybody hangs their deer up wrong? Yes. Yeah, tell them about that. Uh, so I've I've heard that like <clears throat> a good steakhouse or a good butcher will do the tender stretch method where they hang a car like a, a typical deer hunter go kill a deer they skin it out and then they hang it by the Achilles so it's like as long as it possibly can be but I've heard that the tender stretch method is preferred by the beef industry where you basically put these hooks in their pelvis and then you allow. Uh, their back hams to relax and hang at more of a 90 degree angle. Is that something that you hear or, or that you promote? It, it, it will definitely give a measurable improvement in tenderness. If you use that method, it is not used in the U S uh, meat industry at all. Why? Uh, but, but there are other countries that do. Is it well, an efficiency my- thing? No, well, it's what we're used to, right? We know what the cuts look like. We know what to expect, all the rest of that. And, um, and so if you're going to go to a tender stretch strategy, it's a, it's a whole different way of 
separating that carcass into pieces. And it's just not something the U.S. industry has shown any interest in doing. By and large, certainly on the beef side, um, the beef in the United States is pretty tender compared to around the world. But I have been to places around the world where the entire cooler is hung through tender stretch. I, Interesting. I, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I've always heard that it's an issue of being efficient. When you hang something by the Achilles, you can fit a lot more of these things in a cooler than if you hang them uh, by the pelvis, and then they're, they're taking up a lot more room. Side by side, it'd be about the same. But uh, as that hind leg falls forward, then your the distance between the animals would have to be have to be uh, a little bit greater in order to have room for that. It, it might be interesting. Part of that part of that whole tender stretch method uh, was devised because uh, in New Zealand they were shipped. This is years ago. They were they would freeze lambs. Uh, they would slaughter lambs, freeze the carcasses, and ship them overseas. And they discovered that that freezing before rigor mortis made really, really tough meat. And so one way to counteract that was to use that tender stretch method or a similar kind of hanging where the legs fall forward. That, if you think about that, that causes the muscles of the leg on the backside to stretch more. And so because they're stretched more, they're less contracted. But on the inside of the leg, those muscles are actually more contracted. Right? And so it's beneficial for some muscles and not so beneficial for other muscles. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to, okay? It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere meaning you share videos photos from any device and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world there's no memory card required right now aura has a great deal for mother's day listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting auraframes.com to get 30 dollars off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame that's a-u-r-a frames.com use code meat eater at checkout to save terms and conditions apply Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, 
go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized I didn't drink anything all day, and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick. It's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code meat eater at checkout that's 20 percent off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code meat eater at liquidiv.com i want to tell you a story a guy told me and and i want you to tell me he's dead so i want you to tell me if i'm getting his story right <laughs> i used to live next door to a guy in Miles city montana who he was he was in his 90s when i knew him and he was telling me that his family in Montana, they used to raise turkeys and they would raise turkeys around, they, they would time it out in order to be selling Thanksgiving turkeys. They were shipping these turkeys by rail from Montana to Minneapolis. And he told me that they would raise the turkey up and then cut off its food supply so that its digestive tract emptied completely and they would only give it water. Then they would kill the turkeys, pluck them and not gut them because that led to spoilage quicker and that they would pack these turkeys into barrels, guts in them, but no food in their system and ship them by rail to Minneapolis for people to eat on Thanksgiving. This is in the 1930s. I was going to say this was a while ago. (laughs) Does that make any sense? Well, part of it does. Um, actually, if you think about uh, ruminants, right, uh, they they have a lot of gut fill. And so it takes a long time for that to get gone. So you could cut off feed source to an animal for a while, um, you know, 12, 24 hours or whatever. And biologically, that animal doesn't know it. It maybe starts to get a little hungry, but but biologically, it's got all the energy and everything else it needs. Uh, water, access to water is huge. With, with, if you do not have access to water, that whole dark cutting condition uh, becomes uh, evident more quickly. Oh, and really? So access to water is pretty important. It, and so I could fathom a place where you don't feed the turkeys and you have less gut fill. Um, that probably... Um, minimizes a little bit the the risk, but 
to be honest with you, um, I would highly recommend that they be they they have the guts removed as opposed to just <laughs> icing them down and leaving the guts in there. They're after after the animal dies, there is migration of gut bacteria that comes through the go, comes through the walls of the intestines into the rest of the body cavity. Oh, really? And of course, icing that would slow it down and all the rest of that. But why run the risk, right? Just remove it and and uh, let that uh, natural process of cooling and aging take place after that. That's one other thing I want to mention, Steve, is that um, we've talked a lot about what happens up until rigor mortis. But I, I would sure want your listeners to understand that after rigor mortis, then as we store that meat in a refrigerator, that meat's going to gradually get more and more tender because of those enzymes that are naturally in the meat. So I'm thinking back on your turkey question about the guy with the pickup who shoots a turkey is what should he do? Uh, waiting to freeze that meat, even if it's a day or two, is going to make that meat more tender. In beef, we see that that muscle improves in tenderness for about seven to 10 days. After that, it still improves, but at a much lower rate. Oh, okay. And so it would be, you would get far better product if you age that beef two weeks before you made uh, cut it into steaks. Uh, in the case of deer or whatever, even if it's three or four days, that's going to be better than cutting it and putting it in the freezer immediately. Similar to Steve's turkey question, talking about how those turkeys were cut off from food. Um, the guys in my hometown of South Dakota that teach me how to clean snapping turtle, they all did the same thing where they catch a snapping turtle and then they put it in a tank with water and they leave it in there for a week. And they, they say that it's cleansing its system. You don't want to eat them right away. The meat won't be any good. And so all they have for that week is this few inches of water that they're in. Is, is that a really bad practice? I got to tell you, I don't know anything about turtles. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what it would do is it would, it would, it would remove food from the GI tract, of course. Uh, is that good or bad? I, I, I don't know. I, I, my instinct is it seems a little excessive, but um, possibly. You know, Corinne, uh, I want you to find us a snapping turtle meat. I, I know that's a snapping the turtle meat expert. <laughs> Chris, do you have any colleagues of yours I, who have written their dissertation? No one did a dissertation on snappers. <laughs> not that I'm aware of. But, but that's uh, that's not a practice you would ever do with a cow or a, a turkey. That's correct. I would not do that for any of those other animals. But I, I, again, it raises another point. You got to understand a little bit about the digestion uh, system of these animals, right? And so a ruminant has bacteria in that large stomach that breaks down the food into very small components that are then absorbed in the bloodstream and converted to proteins and fats and carbohydrates. In the case of a pig or us humans, we don't have a big rumen. And so that food gets absorbed through the small intestine. As a result, it doesn't have to be broken down into quite such small components. So if we feed, for example, if we have a, if, if we have an, a pig that's eating acorns or peanuts, then the 
the the fats will be quite oily, the meat will be oily, and and you'll actually get some flavor from the diet. But in the case of a ruminant, uh, because all the food parts get broken down so small, uh, the type of diet is not so critical. Now, the energy in the diet is, because remember when we talked about three things that influence tenderness, one of those was fat. So if you get a deer that's grazing on cornfields, for example, that's high energy. They're storing that extra energy in their body in, in a form of fat. And that will, we, uh, particularly in America, we love the taste of, of fat in our, in our meat products. And so a high energy diet helps, but whether that high energy comes from corn or wheat is probably not as critical, uh, particularly in wild game. How quickly does that diet need to change for you to notice a change in the meat quality? I always hear people refer to wood ducks as the best tasting ducks because they eat a lot of acorns. But I, it's hard for me to fathom that throughout their entire migration, they're finding acorns. So how how quickly would something need to start eating acorns or corn or something like that for you to notice the improved meat? Yeah. So the way to think about that is, you, you first of all, you got to deposit fat from the diet but you also got to replace fat that's already there, right? And so uh, it, you have to think about how quickly do you get rid of the old fats that are there and how quickly do you add new fats that are there? Um, I, I don't know specifically for, for ducks, for example, but in the case of cattle, I'm going to bigger animals, that's what I know. In the case of cattle, they'll be in a feedlot 100, 150 days in order to get the high marbling, the high fat inside the muscle that really gives us. Now, is 50 days enough? Well, it's certainly better than zero, right? So it's a continuum. The longer you do it, the better you're going to be. Can you explain marbling and then uh, like what factors lead an animal to, to have marbling? Because you'll often hear, I don't know if you know about this or not, but you'll hear people say that, um, for instance, like that venison isn't marbled, but this is probably way outside of your expertise, but mountain goat has some marbling. Um, what is it? And, and is it really not universal? Yeah. yeah. Well, again, think how that body stores energy. When we get excess energy, our nature is to store it as fat, right? Our glycogen supplies are good. So we start storing energy as fat. Now that fat can be inside the muscle, that's marbling, or it can be outside the muscle, either under the skin, we call that subcutaneous fat, or between the muscles, which would be intermuscular fat instead of intramuscular fat. And so depending on genetics and the type of animal, they will store energy either inside the muscle or outside the muscle. And that's probably species specific. Within a species, there are genetic differences. For example, Wagyu beef, for example, has a lot more marbling than does Angus or, or uh, Hereford or, or another U.S. breed of cattle. So uh, there are some genetic differences within a, within a species that also regulate how much uh, marbling is deposited. We know this for sure, that you only get marbling when you have a high-energy diet. And if you don't, then marbling is least likely to be deposited. So a lot of wild game, 
you know, they're foraging, but they're not on, they're not in the cornfield. They're not getting a high energy diet. So they're probably not going to have as much marbling, even if they have the genetic potential to deposit it in the first place. You know, I, I want to back up a little bit. And this kind of goes back to gutting things and, and the sort of timeline around rigor. But you hear people describe aging, which we want to get into later, but you'll hear people describe aging as, as like a controlled decomposition, right? I don't, right. I, don't know, I don't even know if that's a fair statement or not. But what happens when, um, well, I'll put it another way. Sometimes someone will complain about, oh, I got a deer or an antelope or whatever, and it didn't taste, you know, it was no good. It was too gamey, whatever. And people will say, oh, yeah, but he shot the deer and then rode around with it in the back of his truck for three days. Okay. Yeah. Um, where, if, if aging is like, is decomposition, where does rotting, like, where does aging end and rotting begin? Like, what is the difference there? That's a, that's an awesome question. Um, think about dry aged beef for a moment, right? It could be aged 40, 50, 60, 70 days. And yet normally we would think if you had a steak in your refrigerator for that long, it's long gone, right? You're going to throw it away. And so you, you have to differentiate between when we, when we talk about aging, we're talking about the breakdown of the tissues, mostly the protein inside the meat. Whereas when I think about spoilage or rotting, I'm really thinking about bacterial growth on the outside of that tissue. So if you have a way to age, but to reduce bacterial growth, you can still get improvement in tenderness. Certainly you'll get changes in flavor um, from oxidation that normally occurs, but you could, you could age for longer if you could get rid of bacterial growth. Right. And so that's why you got to be real sanitary when you're out there working. Like you say, avoid the grass and the extra blood and everything else getting all over the meat, because all that does is help uh, inoculate the outside surface of that meat with bacteria. And that's not a good thing when it comes to eating quality. So if you could if you could have a hypothetical situation where you could like eliminate all life inside of a walk-in cooler, right? Meaning there's no, like you, there, there is no bacteria. There's no fungus. Like all life is gone inside some space. You would put a deer in there and that deer would still age, but it wouldn't rot. Right. Now it would, it would dehydrate, right? It would dry out. Remember meat, 75% water. Yeah. And, and so, uh, the typical dry aging uh, over that 40, 50 day period might lose uh, 10 or 15% of the weight, right? So there's still a lot more water that can come out. But at some point, you're practically making jerky. It's just so dry that there's nothing else to do. So you couldn't do it indefinitely. Yeah, but got you. The, the idea would be that you could safely age longer if you could get rid of the bacteria. And by the way, the bacteria wouldn't necessarily already be in the cooler. We bring it in when we bring in the carcass of the animal. Right? Got you. So, so that guy who's driving around with a, 
uh, antelope on the back of his truck for a couple of days. You know, he's he's inoculating that product is what he's doing by the time you get done with it. Yep. Uh, I recently read a book called Extra Virginity, and it was about the scandalous world of olive oil and how it's like rampant to take a $10 bottle of olive oil and put a $500 price tag on it, a $500 label. Is the world of meat exempt from that, or does it happen there? What are some examples of meat fraud? In the commercial industry, all animal harvest and cutting is... um, overseen by employees of the federal government. And so uh, meat fraud is very, very, very low. Uh, that There are inspectors there to ensure safety and wholesomeness. There are agents that deal with accuracy and labeling and the rest of that kind of thing. And so um, there's a there's a lot of reasons why meat fraud would be at a minimum. Now, if I were going to cheat, I might, I might cut one part of a carcass and tell you it's a different part. Right. And, and so I might try and take something out of the shoulder and make you think it's part of the rib, for example, because there's a dollar value there. It doesn't happen very often, but that would be one place. The other place where you simply need to be careful is some of the claims that are made about how the animal is raised and handled and so forth. And again, most of the time there are systems in place, there are audits in place, there are government employees in place to ensure that that's that's accurate. And if there is deception and labeling, the consequences of that are pretty serious. So um, I, I don't think there's a lot of fraud in meat, quite honestly. Have you, uh, you know, it's funny Spencer brings up the olive oil thing because I know that there's a ton of fraud uh, in in the fish world. And I remember reading about this thing where, you know, there's many varieties of snapper, but they don't have name brand recognition. And I remember reading that these guys did this thing where 70 some percent of the fish being sold as red snapper is not red snapper. But right. when you, people look at a menu or going to a fish market, they don't want to see mangrove snapper, red line or blue line or whatever the hell, all these different kinds of snapper. So they just throw up like red snapper because people will think like, oh. But the difference there is it's uh, it's not nearly as a controlled system from a supply standpoint. That's correct. You know, some of the guys buying fillets, is like it's already out of the question, but it's hard to... Uh, it's probably hard to pass off one kind of carcass as another kind of carcass. Though Absolutely I imagine the grade, right. the grading system could be screwed up. Oh, no, that, that too is done by federal employees. And uh, oh, is that right? So you don't make yeah, your own call. You don't make your own call on grading. No, if you, you can self grade and establish your own grading requirements, but if you're going to call it prime choice, select, uh, then those grades are are through federal employees, federal graders, and that's a that's been a tightly controlled system for a long time. I was in a I was in a meat plant this week actually where uh, I, I watched graders work, so it's still happening. Were you uh, were you second guessing them? <laughs> no, no, I. Uh, you you agreed uh, with the calls they were making? 
Yes, I, I was actually, I was actually in there buying meat for a research project, actually. So, <laughs> what goes into the different grades? Like, what makes a prime a prime, or a choice a choice, or a select a select? So there's there's two primary elements used for grade. One is how old the animal is, and the other one has to do with how much marbling, how much mm. fat inside the muscle. It turns out in the U.S. We send all the young animals to one plant and all of the old animals to a different plant. And so uh, there, it, mostly age is not a question and it's just how much marbling is present to get prime or choice or select. One time I was, I was working on a magazine story years ago about livestock theft, like, like contemporary cattle rustling. Yeah. And I went, I was at a sale yard in Twin Falls, Idaho. And I was with some guys that run a, a cow calf operation. And they were watching what they called milked out dairy cows climbing off a truck. And they expressed a, like a, a high level of disapproval about the condition of the animals. And made a comment about what the beef would be like off those. What were they getting at? Well, it's that it's nutrition again, right? So if you have enough energy, then you can support yourself. You have enough muscle and you have enough fat uh, to sustain body condition. In the case of dairy cows in particular, they're being milked every day they're putting a lot of their energy into providing that milk. So you have to provide a really high plane of nutrition. If you're milking and you and the, the plane of nutrition lowers, then that animal is gonna get a lot leaner and it might even lose a little bit of muscle mass. And so that's that body condition that they're looking at. So, not, so it won't be, it, it like potentially won't be as good and could be tougher. Well, yeah, so the other issue there is those dairy cows are much older. They could be three, four, five years old, whereas uh, young cattle to the marketplace are typically two years or less. And the older an animal, sort of like us, us, right? The older we get, the tougher we get, right? And that's what happens for muscle as well. Mature animals, more connective tissue, less tender than younger animals. So that when you're out hunting, you see that three, four-year-old stag, right? It's it's not going to be as tender as an animal that's uh, much younger. Are there any exceptions to the rule? Like, does it go as far as that a fawn deer would be way more tender than an old buck? Yes, what you just said is correct. A fawn would be more tender than a buck with, with one caveat. That fawn is so small that it would be very easy for it, that muscle to get cold and contract before it goes into rigor mortis. So if you could control temperature correctly, then that fawn would be way more tender than the older animal. It's the same thing with veal, right? Veal is much younger than the, than the 24 uh, month old uh, steers and heifers that we, we buy in the grocery store every day. And veal is much more tender as well. 
Is veal synonymous with crate-raised veal? Do you remember all the, the blow-up years ago about crate-raised veal? Is there a difference, or is crate-raised veal a qualifier of veal? Uh, no, veal is based on animal age. So mo- most of the veal these days is raised in pens, in group pens, okay. where there are a number of them together. So um, that there is a, a welfare question that was raised, and I think the industry has responded well to it in that regard. So, so that is like that is a classification or was a classification of veal rather than just meaning that veal is crate raised. Cause I think people thought it was synonymous. Like if it's veal, you know, it, it was raised in a specific way, but it could skydive and still be veal. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> the government would say that um, it, it, veal is based on animal age period. Gotcha. That's it. And so if someone's, you know, if someone says free range veal or pin raised veal or group raised veal, those descriptors are being used by the people who are marketing the product. Federal government focuses on the fact that it, in fact, is veal. Why is it bad to eat raw red meat? And are there less threats with something like deer meat versus cow meat? The, the risk of eating raw meat is is primarily one of microbial uh, issues, uh, spoilage and and pathogens that could make you sick. Um, In addition, if there are parasites in the meat, then if you haven't cooked it, then that's a risk as well. And so I would think game meat would be perhaps more likely to have parasites uh, in in commercial production of animals they're going to do everything they can to minimize that because that reduces the growth efficiency. And it's all about efficiency in, in commercial production. So again, in that lifeless, uh, in that hypothetical lifeless space, you could eat the raw meat all the time. It's just like you're, there's no damage from the actual meat. It's just stuff that you're ingesting that accompanies it. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to say that. Yeah. Right. I have another I have a question that kind of relates back also to you know idea of crate raised veal. But okay, so let's look at human beings. So somebody who doesn't do any exercise whatsoever and just kinda sits around, and then someone who lifts weights all the time and has stronger, bigger muscle. So if we look at the This is a cannibalism question. <laughs> You bet. Who did their, who did their PhD? We need the, the next one. After the turtle guy, I want a, a, a human meat guy. I'm glad you're asking the question because I was wondering the same thing. Like which people taste best? Yeah, totally. <laughs> if you have a diet of Fruit Loops, <laughs> we have salad. Um, so if we look at the equivalent of that in in animals, uh, an animal that maybe doesn't move around a lot compared to same same animal, same species, but that moves around a lot more or um, or, or I don't know, cats climbing trees. Yeah, we hear like, about people talk about why is the chicken in like in rural Mexico, the chicken's so good. Be like, well, it's well exercised. Right. Like like if it if an animal has, I don't know, is stronger, has more muscle, is potentially more contracted muscle, like how does that all, or is well exercised or not, how does that have an effect, if any, on 
toughness, or you you can still manipulate the meat afterwards and the muscle fiber afterwards to to ha- to get it to be tender. Good. Uh, I'll answer that, but I I just want to tease you guys. I always have a conversation with my students, and that is that sooner or later, when you're talking to the public, they become closet scientists, <laughs> and they think they know science. And uh, but the basis of your question is is actually is twofold. Number one, does exercise make meat less tender? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then the other dimension of that is the inactivity means that they're burning up less energy. And if they're consuming the same, they're creating more fat. And so that latter part is true. The less exercise, the less movement, the more fat is going to be produced uh, on the same diet, right? In terms of exercise, creating tougher connective tissue and the rest of that, those differences, if they exist, are very subtle Hmm, and uh, not meaningful. You would have a far greater difference in um, tenderness from one muscle to another than you would from one, one animal to another because of exercise. Okay. So pretty much, you know, given given more or less exercise among people in the office, we may all taste about the same. Yeah. Presuming you're the same age. <laughs> right. Right. Yep. <laughs> in, in a real quick, simple way, what's the difference between the dark meat, you know, with poultry? What's the difference between the, the dark meat and the white meat? Uh, it's it's that amount of myoglobin that's present. So um, not all muscle cells are the same. Some have more myoglobin than the other. So the dark meat just has more of that myoglobin and biologically typically has a little bit more lipid, a little bit more fat in there as well. Neither one is very fat, but there might be another percentage or two of fat in there. Mostly the color difference is just because there's more of that uh, oxygen binding pigment in the meat. Can you explain the function of glands that you find when you're butchering something? And are glands as prominent in domestic animals as they are wild ones? Well, yeah, Spencer, it's not like you produce more glands from being domestic. Well, I don't know. Go ahead. I, I, well, well, I'm, I'm thinking about like with a white-tailed deer, like they use their glands to mark territory and things like that. Like but, a more active gland. Yeah. Well, I'll buy that because you smell a fox and you smell your dog named close to the same thing. Right. So, like, go, like, go on. <laughs> He's right. So, so in this case, you're talking about scent glands, and we really don't have scent glands in domestic animals to deal with too much. Really? Um, where Yes. But if you're talking about lymph glands, those lymph nodes, lymph glands, they exist in, in all of the animals they're probably a little bit more visible, easy to see in a leaner animal. And so you probably see those more often in game. And what is the function of those? Uh, well, that's, a, that's an immune function. That's a, a how the animal sustains health. You know, when, you get, when you get a cold, you have an immune response that helps you fight against it. So there's a whole system in the body called the lymph system that moves that fluid around to help uh, fight uh, disease and injury and the rest of that kind of thing. So when you sprain your ankle, it swells up. That's that's lymph fluid pooling in your ankle as a result. You know, there's a little gland that's always hiding out in the back leg of a deer, and you actually got to take it apart to get that thing out. Yeah. Let's say you you forget or don't or you never knew about it, and just you must have been eating them your whole life. Um, is that necessarily bad for you? 
I, I, I don't, I wouldn't be too concerned about a health concern. Okay. I, I suspect it probably has a quality effect on taste and flavor and that kind of thing. That same guy that told me the great Turkey story about shipping them to Minneapolis in barrels. He had a little custom slaughter plant and I was down there with him one time and we were picking out, uh, sweetbreads, oh, yeah. the, the thymus gland, correct? Right. We were picking out sweetbreads and he was, we were, he was slaughtered a bunch of young cattle. And the guy that he was slaughtering for didn't want him. So he had me down because he said, you can get all you want if you want to come down. And so he was showing me how to separate the skin and prepare them. And he was saying that that, I said, well, why are they not good on the older animals? And he said that it turns waxy. Is this something you had any exposure to? Well, I I have had uh, sweetbreads and I can tell you that, uh, on the grill in particular, they can be quite delicious. Oh my, they're, they're, it's, they're incredible. Yeah. It's, uh, and it, it makes sense to me that as the animal gets older, uh, that possibly the, the, the saturation of the lipids might change. I don't really know, but, uh, I think it's probably less waxy and more, um, uh, dense, harder fat that's present within that area. But that's a little bit of guess on my part. Yeah, I've never met. I've I've always thought to experiment with this, but never have. As if on a yearling deer, um, to find that sweetbread and prepare it and see if it's any good. And I'm sure someone listening has done this, but I've never heard of people doing sweetbreads on anything but cattle. Well, lamb. I think people do lamb sweetbreads. Yeah, they're they're a little bit hard to find. You got to know what you're looking for. They're not very big, uh, particularly in game animals. So I think that'd be a bigger challenge. Why is beef tallow good and venison tallow bad? Well, I've never had venison tallow, so I, oh. uh, but it's, uh, it has to do with, I would expect it's a difference in what fatty acids are made up of the tissue. Right. And so um, if you think about, something like uh, chicken or pork fat, it's pretty soft. When you go to the beef carcass, it's a lot more firm. And so it's more saturated in the beef animal. Incidentally, it depends on where on the carcass you get. The, the, the fat in the brisket area is softer than fat that's over the loin. And the fat that's around the kidney is harder than everything. And so there are differences within the animal as well. But if you have, a, if you have a, an unsaturated fat, a soft fat, like pork, like poultry, I would expect like game, um, that fat will oxidize more quickly. It's uh, biologically disposed to do so. It interacts with oxygen from the air. Oxidized lipids are described by us as rancid. And so there could very well be a flavor difference there as well. Oh no, I think you're get. I think you're you're onto it. Uh, uh, I'll tell you some of the the weird at when we talk about deer tallow. Like I'll tell you some of the the attributes that we find that differ from the attributes of beef fat. It is uh, the the most fat you find is over the rump. So kind of like alongside like on, on top of the rump alongside either side of the spine you'll find these big flat cakes of fat it's it's firm right like you could you could cut into squares okay. it's kind of flaky like when it, when it flakes you can sort of when it when it's cold or whatever you can kind of flake it away and hold it in your fingers and it doesn't melt 
between your fingers at all. When you eat it, it like if you take a sip, like if you were eating a venison rib, and then you had a sip of ice water, that fat will set up and solidify all over on the inside of your mouth. Um, and to the point where you have to almost manually scrape it off the inside of your mouth. And finally, it is good. It's okay, fresh, but it rots in your freezer. Yeah. And you pull it out later and it's chained, man. Like like six, Venice deer fat in your freezer for six months comes out way different than when it went in, but the meat is not changed. Yeah. It's that I'm sure that's that concentration of fats and oxidation that takes place. Oxidation happens in your freezer as well. So that's entirely consistent with what I would expect. You know what's weird? You know what really goes bad in a freezer is bear fat. I don't know why. You can render it into like really nice lard, but it goes bad. If it, unrendered, just the straight fat will rot in your freezer. I don't know if pork fat does, but. I, uh, it, pork fat will probably at a little bit of a slower rate. Um, but you know, this is one of those things where we could talk just briefly about packaging, right? A Please. lot of times we, we wrap it up in, in that sort of that waxy coated or plastic coated butcher paper, sure, which doesn't get, doesn't get the air out. Right. Whereas, um, if you seal it inside a vacuum bag, a plastic bag, and vacuum seal that, which is how things are done commercially, you've gotten rid of almost all the air that's there, and that will extend the either the shelf life when it's fresh or the shelf life in the freezer as well because it minimizes that oxidation process. Oh, I, oh go ahead, Spencer. So – are you replicating that when you freeze something in water? It's very common among fishermen to take uh, a bag of fillets and fill it with water and then throw that in your freezer because it doesn't allow any air to come in contact with the meat. Is that doing the same thing? Yeah, that's the same principle. I, I would argue you probably still get some air through there, but it it would certainly reduce the problem. You know, we used to, in the old days, we would just wrap red meat in waxed freezer paper which created all kinds of problems like you just get freezer burned corners you know right now i'll do one of two things where i typically will wrap it in plastic wrap like saran wrap in order to get all as much of the air out as i can and then put it in the wax freezer paper which i think is protective like protects it the integrity of the plastic wrap underneath when people are like jam you know shuffling around in the freezer and also it decreases light or eliminates light from yes. penetrating in. Um, do you feel that that system is, is like a, a good system for home use? Sure. It, it's not quite as effective as the vacuum packaging we're talking about. But the secret is uh, you use the magic word saran. Like everything else, not all plastic wrap is created equal. Huh. Saran, saran is an oxygen barrier. And in fact, those, those vacuum package bags I'm talking about, they're layered. And the center layer is a saran type product to prevent oxygen from penetrating. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh. There are some plastic wrap that will let 
air through and we'll let oxygen through and water through. And so it depends on which, which plastic wrap you're using. How do you know that you're getting the right kind? Um, you know, the, the easiest way is to, uh, if it's, if, uh, it's not necessarily a brand endorsement, but Saran is the brand name for the oxygen barrier film. Um, oh, I see. The other thing you can do, um, for example, if you make like, uh, if you take avocados and, and chop them up and you cover them with plastic wrap, some of that plastic wrap, it will turn brown very, very quickly and others it will not. And so that's an indication of oxygen permeability as well kind of an in-home science test, if you will. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to, okay? It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere meaning you share videos photos from any device and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world there's no memory card required right now aura has a great deal for mother's day listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting auraframes.com to get 30 dollars off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame that's a-u-r-a frames.com use code meat eater at checkout to save terms and conditions apply Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. 
Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. When you thaw out a piece of frozen meat like a backstrap and there's all that liquid in the plate what is that? Just water? That's water and myoglobin. There are a few other proteins that are in there, water-soluble enzymes, that kind of thing. It doesn't compromise the nutritional quality of the product at all, but there's no reason to hold on to it. You know, the big thing I remind people is um, the raw meat might be on that plate. Once you get it cooked, make sure you use a clean plate. So would it be a bad practice then to freeze something, thaw it out, refreeze it again, and then thaw it out again. Are, are you creating a worse product? Yes. You're, you're yeah, driving what, happened, what happens there? Okay, go on. You're driving moisture from the product, and uh, usually when you thaw it out, you're exposing it to oxygen, so you're getting more oxidation as well. So both of those things would be uh, negative in terms of eating experience. But not a huge negative. Yeah, I mean, you can refreeze me. <laughs> yeah, I do. I like. I've long been. I I always have people tell me you can't do that. You can't do that. But I'm like, well, <laughs> then I should be deader than dead because we do it all the time. Like sure. we'll thaw big bags. So if we bone, let's say you bone a deer, like a deer shoulder out. Um, we'd bone the deer shoulder out, and you don't have time for whatever reason, just because of life, and you put all the meat into a, a gallon size Ziploc bag. Squeeze the air out, put it in your freezer for whatever, a month, and then you finally get time, you're going to make some sausage. Pull it back out, thaw it, make sausage or burger or whatever, repackage it, and then it goes back into the freezer. Now, I'll, like, sure, like something must be lost, but I would, if I Pepsi challenged you on it, I don't think you'd be able to pick it out. For the most part, those subtle differences, particularly if you're going from a whole product to a to a ground product, uh, I think you're safe by doing that. You know, you you want to think a little bit about thawing. If you're if you're one of those guys who throws it on the kitchen counter and lets it thaw for the rest of the day, if there's any bacteria in there, that's not particularly food safety practices we'd want to encourage. Yeah, um, I, I'd say put it in the fridge. Let it get partially thawed, cut off what you need, and then refreeze the rest so that you know that you haven't gotten in a temperature zone where lots of extra spoilage bacteria take place. But the practice that you've talked about, people take, people do that all the time. You're absolutely right. And I think I was trying to point out that it's a matter of degrees of, of, of differences. Sure. And it's not, a, it's not a binary yes, no, do, don't, live, die kind of decision on that thing. Chris, what does the science say about marinating meat? Can you get a liquid to penetrate like a roast and change the flavor of it? 
Yeah, so there's two reasons to marinate. One is to change flavor, and one is to tenderize the meat. And so if you're going to change flavor, then pretty much whatever flavor you like, you can marinate the meat for an hour or two. You'll get a nice surface coating, and uh, and it will uh, alter the, the taste of the product in your cooking. And that's, that's easy. You can do that with – we do similar things with dry rubs, right, where you just – rub the spices on the outside and so forth. Um, but most of the time when we think in meat science about marinating, we're thinking about how are you making that meat more tender? The secret goes back to that connective tissue, that silvery tissue on the outside that goes throughout the whole muscle. You can think of that connective tissue like a fishnet or like a harness so that when the individual cell contracts, that connective tissue moves with it. And that's how we get movement of the whole body or the whole arm as a result of contraction in the live animal. So when you marinate, you want to tenderize that connective tissue. That works best if you have an acid-based marinade. So a wine or a vinegar or a citric kind of a base, even a soy sauce, those kinds of marinades will enhance the tenderness of the product. The secret, as you just pointed out, is how deep and how far does that really penetrate into the muscle? And I can tell you, it doesn't go that far, right? You can you can marinate for eight hours and only be a eighth or a quarter of an inch into the tissue. So it's best if you marinate thinner, smaller pieces. Uh, if you want to get real sophisticated, you can you can get a syringe and you can actually inject some of that marinate into a larger a larger piece of meat, and that will work as well. Um, the last thing on marinades I would mention is that there are some, um, some fruits that have enzymes in them that tenderize meat. And so, for example, kiwi fruit or raw pineapple, uh, even papaya and figs, all of those have enzymes that will attack the meat. Now, if it's canned pineapple, well, by canning, you've inactivated the enzyme. It doesn't work anymore. Oh, huh. As a fresh product, if you add that to the to the to the dish, you can tenderize meat in that way. You know, you might give me an answer here that I don't believe and and know is wrong, but can you increase moisture by marinating or brining? This is a hot debate in in the culinary world. I'm I'm not sure whether you would increase. Uh, for marinating, you might be able to get a little bit more moisture in there. But, you know, you're trying to get water to move from, to a place that's already 75% moisture. So I wouldn't think you'd get very much of an effect um, just by marinating to enhance moisture. If you're brining, look, salt dries out meat, right? That's how we used to preserve meat years and years ago is packet and salt. Yeah. And so salt tends to draw moisture out of the product. Now, if you mix up a salt solution and you inject it in the meat, okay, you've added more moisture there. But if you're just putting a piece of meat into a brine, the, 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 you're getting the reverse effect. You're getting moisture pulled out. But don't they, like, don't they sell – you know how sometimes uh, you can get a turkey and it actually has an ingredients list? Yeah. Because they've they've they inject it with a, a brine, yes, and and that's like specifically to make it moist, right? But that's just you're just like physically sticking water in there. 
Yes, but you're also adding uh, salt, which is a great flavor potentiator, right? It enhances flavor. And so if you give somebody a piece of meat with salt and without salt, most of the time they'll tell you the one with salt tastes better, is more tender, more juicy, more flavorful. All gotcha. the rest of that kind of thing. Plus, there are other ingredients that go into that, that turkey that would help the moisture stay in the meat instead of just run out. So it's a, it's, I think we're dealing with the difference in terminology here and what you're really doing and how it's getting done. Gotcha. What if you like pulverize kiwi and pineapple and you put some meat in a bowl of that so there's no sodium, so you're not having water come out of it, but you're having it in an enzyme bath of liquid? You, I, I tell you that I have cooked meat with, uh, on a, in a skillet with kiwi before that I could eat with a spoon. <laughs> really? Maybe that's our yeah, next I, recipe. It wasn't, it wasn't very good <laughs> oh. because, it, because it was mush. It was mush. All right, aging. Um, it must be real. Like dry aging is beneficial. What, uh, hit us with some do's and don'ts. Well, so... Um, when you are aging, you are allowing the enzymes that are naturally present within the meat to break down the protein that enhances tenderness. So if you, you could age in one of those vacuum bags where almost no moisture comes out, or you could age in air. If you're aging in air, we call it dry aging. If you're aging in one of those vacuum packages, we call it wet aging. And in both cases, the tenderization process is the same. And as I said earlier, you'll get the great benefit in the first week or so or two. And then after that, the benefits of aging uh, are reduced. You don't see you've already tenderized it to a large extent to the, to the most that it will occur. It will continue to improve, but not very much. Um, so. Uh, from an aging standpoint for tenderness, it's enzymes that do the work. When we dry age, we're putting meat typically on a rack and we leave it set for a period of time. And what happens is the moisture on the surface of that cut evaporates fairly quickly. In fact, over three or four days, uh, you'll, you can get a very nice dry crust on the outside of that meat. The longer you store it after that, you'll still lose moisture. And um, two things happen during that aging period from a taste standpoint. One is you're concentrating the flavors because you're removing water and everything else stays behind. But the other thing is, is you're actually creating flavors. Proteins get broken down into amino acids, and some amino acids uh, are like the ingredients in MSG. They're, they're, they're uh, flavor potentiators as well, enhancers. Uh, you get some oxidation flavors that go on as you dry age as well. So the taste of a dry aged piece of meat is profoundly different than the taste of a wet aged piece of meat. So I, I think... Uh, like a lot of other things, if someone says, I'm going to dry age, they need to understand why they are dry aging, what they're going to accomplish when they do that. Now, when you dry age, 
you lose the weight, I mentioned before, 15% or more, but then you've also got this hard crust on the outside that you've got to trim off and throw away. Do you guys ever call that the rind? Yeah. That, oh, good. That be and so you're talking about maybe another 15%. So you're probably going to lose 30% of the weight of that muscle when you dry age. You know, 20 I want to 20 to 30%. A guy once served me a piece of Audad. It was a, he had an Audad shoulder that he had aged for 18 months. Oh and once you got through all the dried out stuff, there was a strip of meat inside there that was about the size of a cigar. And it tasted like blue cheese. I mean, it was the cheesiest, strongest, most potent thing. Um, He was just kind of experimenting with how long can you, how long can you go? But that felt like a real Petri dish, you know? Yeah. Uh, But no ill effect. We ate it raw. My goodness. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're braver than I am. Is mold always a bad sign when you're dry aging something? No. Um, but, uh, it makes me nervous. Some mold can be toxic, particularly the black molds. There is a a gray mold that tends to come on and, uh, some dry aging experts will say that that enhances or alters the flavor. Incidentally, they've done some testing on some molds and one of them is associated with uh, blue cheese. It's the same kind of mold that can take place. But I would emphasize, you don't have to have mold to have a very good dry age product. In fact, I sort of feel like if you've got mold, to me, that's an indication that maybe you don't have the most sanitary cleaning system set up before you started to dry age in the first place. I'm not a big fan of mold, but I'll tell you, there are some scientists who say it does accentuate and add a little bit to the flavor as well. A friend of mine who was a chef, he always advised me that the only mold that bothers him is the black fuzzy kind. So he always said, <laughs> that, that's, that's true. Not the only yeah. one, but that black fuzzy is bad. That's correct. What, what about aging temperature? I always hear uh, butchers stress that you shouldn't let the ambient temperature get below freezing because it slows down the aging process. So you're not accomplishing what you're trying to do. What is like the ideal temperature for aging meat? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, if it's frozen, water is not going to move, right, very easily. And so you want to be above freezing. I would say 34, 35 degrees or somewhere in that ballpark would be about right. If you get much higher than that, then you start to get bacterial growth and the rest of that. What's the, what's the real danger zone? Well, anything over 40 for certain would be too high. Oh, okay. Um, but, and, but if you're going to store it for a week or two, uh, I, I, would, I would shoot for the mid-30s, frankly, for that very reason. If it, here's the secret. If it starts to get slimy, that's bacterial growth. And if it's dry, then... Um, and it's not slimy, then you have less bacterial growth. It's not zero, but you have much less spoilage bacteria growing if it's not slimy than if it is. You know, there are certain little tricks that people try where um, they'll say like out in the field, you can rub uh, black pepper 
all over a quarter to help preserve it? Or do people make these little packages? It's some kind of, I don't know what, some kind of acid or something. It looks like a little drink package, and you mix that in a water bottle and shake it up. I've messed with this stuff, and I wasn't happy with the results because it kind of looked like if you put lime juice all over meat. But anyways, they shake it up, and you bathe a, a quarter of meat and that stuff, and it's supposed to inhibit inhibit bacterial growth. Are any? Do you think? Do you, would you have faith in any of these methods as actually accomplishing anything? I'm I'm not too enthusiastic about pepper from a preservative standpoint, but I will tell you that in fact uh, a light organic acid will reduce bacteria on the surface. Okay. In fact, that's that's commercially done as well. A light mist, uh, usually a lactic acid or a citric acid, for example, could work as well, tends to reduce spoilage bacteria. And um, I know sometimes the, the surface of the meat will get that lime juice appearance you're talking about where it kind of looks washed out and the yep. rest of that. But that's only surface. Okay. By the time you cook it, you won't even know that that acid was there. You know, I I, I realized I misspoke, and I didn't, and I, and I caught it when you mentioned it. Is when we did this, it, you, you were right. It was in a spray bottle. Yeah. It was it was a product that you mix in a spray bottle, and and it's funny because what turned me off was that lime juicy look, but I didn't think about the fact that that was very surface level. Yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty thin layer, but that's really all you need. the The bigger challenge for me is, you could do that, but now you've got a, a, a carcass that's low in bacterial load. What do you do with it, right? If you're going to go lay it in the bed of a pickup and drive it home, you sort of kind of worked against yourself, right? Now, maybe a better way would be take it home and hang it, and then spray it. Right. Once you're done and transporting it. Once you're done with transport. Yep. Alternatively, alternatively, go ahead and get the animal, but leave the hide on and don't take the hide off till you get home. Then when you take the hide off, you can spray it and be ready to go. I realize uh, uh, an animal that's gone into rigor mortis is harder to skin, of course. So there's the downside to that. Oh, yeah. Man, they skin nice when they're brand new. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Um, Chris, would you mind talking a bit about uh, some of the research that you've been doing and some of the work you've been doing recently and any new discoveries there? So, uh, yeah, there's two, well, probably three or four things I could talk about here. I'll do this briefly, and if you have questions, we can go deeper. We have built in our laboratory 12 dry aging chambers that are um, – the most tightly controlled dry aging chambers in the world. We can control relative humidity. We can control airspeed. We can control level of oxygen. We can measure the weight of the meat once a second for six weeks if we want to do that. And of course, it's in a cooler where we can control temperature. There's a lot of lore about dry aging a lot of art, if you will, but we're trying to push science forward. And so we've learned a lot about how moisture moves out of that meat. Uh, a lot of people think, for example, that rind or that crust prevents moisture loss. It does not. Huh. We're learning a lot of different things about 
um, dry aging that has not been seen before. And we continue to, to do that kind of work. We also have some work we just finished up uh, that if you if you think about these meal kit services, mm-hmm. um, you get a you get a package of meat in there, and most of the time that package of meat is brown. It's not very attractive in color. And so we did a whole project on how do you maintain bright red color in frozen meat. And uh, so there's some tricks you can do if you understand the biology to do that. Uh, we have. Uh, a lot of people feed uh, different kinds of feed to animals. And we are, we're, this is really deep biochemistry, but we're looking at the chemistry now of what happens during that rigor mortis process. And right after that, that tenderizes meat. So we're looking at the enzymes and how that whole process gets controlled. And then lastly, um, we did a project here. Um, it's been a number of years now where we went through and characterized with a group of scientists, not just me, we characterized a lot of different muscles in the beef carcass. Hmm. Out of that, the the flat iron steak was identified. Uh, There were a number of other cuts as well, but that's probably the one that's most well known. And so when when we do research in my laboratory, I'm I'm a quality oriented uh, scientist in meats. And so I'm looking at meat quality from the standpoint of, of what makes that product taste better? What, is, what gives it better flavor? What makes it more tender? What makes it um, longer shelf life? What gives us the right color? Uh, what gives us the optimal use of that animal? And we talked before about respecting the products that we get. And um, I, I get frustrated when we use the wrong muscle for the wrong recipe, because you are either undervaluing one or overvaluing the other one. And so trying to make sure that we use the right part in the right place in the right way. And and to me, that is a win-win-win. It's a win for the people who produce the animals. It's a, it's a win for the people that are marketing those products. And best of all, it's a win for those people who are consuming those products. I think the same thing about your listeners, quite honestly. They've, they've gone to expense, they've gone to energy, they've gone to effort to go out and, and get them an animal. And part of it is the experience, which we all enjoy hiking and being outside and all the rest of that. But I would love for them to end up with the highest quality product they can so that the ultimate end of the experience is a very satisfying one as well. You know, uh, Chris, can you, I don't think we talked about this. What school are you at? What university? I'm, I'm at the University of Nebraska in the animal science department. Okay, so I know you guys got snapper turtles there. Now, <laughs> when you steer, to, you're talking about different muscle groups, right? Like different, the qualities yeah. of different muscles. When you steer one of your graduate students, do you have graduate students? Yes. Okay, when you steer one of them into snapping turtle work, <laughs> I want you to remind them that it is lore among snapping turtle people that there are, is it five or seven? There are, I think seven. There are seven distinct (laughs) meats inside of a snapping turtle. So, since it's all low-hanging fruit in snapping turtle meat research, (laughs) that might be a good dissertation, would be like, you have to think of how to, you have to think of a good title for the dissertation, but it would be something like, um, uh, testing the qualitative 
yada yada of the seven kinds of snapping turtle meat? Well, I, I first of all, I have to locate the Snapping Turtle Meat Foundation. To get fun. <laughs> they have deep pockets, Chris. Don't worry. <laughs> Very deep pockets. Spencer and I will start that organization now. Yeah, and do some fundraising so we can fund the research. I've never known what they mean by the seven types. I don't like, like pork, chicken, beef, things like that. But there's, there's. Well, to, to their credit, to their credit, to to the to the. It looks like I'm talking just looking at it. Like you know the the back straps that run down the inside of a turtle inside that little honeycomb bone? Yeah. Very, very white, very stringy. You can tear it apart by hand. Then like their legs have some intensely dark meat. The neck is visually very different. There's something there. Chris's student will find it <laughs> and he'll report back to us. And then Chris will probably do some dry aging on turtle studies. There you go. So you know. I might also tell you this story that I was contacted a number of years ago by a scientist who was working in Latin America. And he was looking at uh, what was the motivation for hunters. They would go out hunting bushmeat Mm -hmm. and they would go out hunting monkeys and they would walk by howler monkeys and they would hike for a week in order to get spider monkeys. Yeah. And, and, he was trying to figure out how much energy it took them to go harvest one type over another. And he couldn't figure out what was the difference in these two animals. Well, it turns out spider monkeys eat fruit and howler monkeys eat a lot of tree bark, rich in tannins. And we actually came uh, very close to having a research project on monkey meat taste because I'm convinced those howler monkeys had very bitter flavored meat and the spider monkeys was going to be, you know, much more desirable meat products. However, like everything else, the funding fell through for that project and we didn't get to do it. But that, That's too bad. I was with, I was with the Chimane and we went monkey hunting. They, their favorite is the spider monkey. Second favorite was red howler. We got a red howler and ate it, but the, the way they cook things, it really, everything winds up being very similar because they'll dry it, you know, they, they like smoke it, then boil it, and they do a lot of processes to it that really change it. There were right. other monkeys that I thought, when we encountered them, I thought, man, this monkey's in trouble, but they're very dismissive of it. And then we encountered a possum after they got a red howler, and I thought, man, this like, no one wants to eat monkeys. There are people that at least like possums. This possum is doomed. And they were very dismissive of anyone that would ever go near a possum and strolled on past it. It would be a, a real rich area of inquiry for someone to look into the qualitative nature of how it's viewed, uh, what tastes good, and how culturally subjective that is. I, I one time, I spent some time with the Chupic Eskimos, they like tougher meat. When butchering an animal, like this part is good. It's very chewy. This part is not good. It's very tender. They especially like the tendon that supports the head that comes off the spine. That's yes. good because that's nice and chewy. And um, it'd be fascinating to understand like how much of this stuff is culturally overlaid 
And if there really is any sort of human, you know, any sort of objective reality about what tastes good. That's a great question. That there are cultures in the world that, that favor the less tender product. There are also cultures in the world that favor the stronger, more intense flavors that come from uh, pasture-raised beef or wild game, for example. Uh, and interesting on our monkey meat conversation, uh, you touched on, I think, a really critical point. And, and that was not only would they um, kind of dismiss the monkeys, but if some hunter actually shot one, then that person was widely disparaged as well. Oh, as, is that right? Huh? Yeah. So there was a, definitely a social aspect to it to go on top of, of everything else, as you mentioned. Okay, Corinne. Let's close out with the future. Okay. <laughs> this is Corinne. This is this this is uh Corinne's been dying to talk about this. Well, okay. So we've done some blind taste testing around here with fake meat. And I think overwhelmingly, <laughs> as soon as you have a bite of the imposter meat, I mean, it's just so obvious. Taste, texture, smell, everything that would go into, you know, one's experience of eating something is just so clearly not any kind of meat. So how much meat science goes into the development of these products? And from your perspective, how possible is it on a cellular level to really create uh, uh, animal flesh out of nothing that is animal material? How much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, uh, first of all, it, most there have been food scientists who have contributed to those products. Not too many meat scientists, but there That's are. It's too food bad. Scientists. Maybe they would yeah. have had better products. Uh, but you know, within that, if you, you we started our conversation talking about Warner Bratzler shear, an objective measure of tenderness. If you look at the muscles in a beef carcass there is more than a twofold difference in shear force from one muscle to the other. So even within an animal, there's a wide range of tenderness and texture. I uh, tend to agree with you. Every one of those non-meat products that we've talked about um, has not met my standard for um, what I care to eat. I, I like to say, sort of tongue-in-cheek, um, everybody's entitled to their own stupid opinion, right? <laughs> and uh, as, a, as a food industry, I don't object to offering a variety of products, even if I myself don't care for them. Sure. But um, mostly the comments I've just made are relevant regarding plant-based substitutes for meat. Uh, There is some effort going on to use uh, cells and grow cells to create uh, a a meat product like you're talking about. But just as we have a twofold difference in tenderness within the body itself uh, in tenderness, um, the structures and cellular architecture it takes to build those muscles 
they are very, very far away from being able to mimic a meat-like structure in, in my judgment. And so certainly I, as a meat scientist, I don't feel threatened by those products. Uh, mostly I am, I guess I'm a little disappointed and frustrated by the marketing claims that are made regarding those kinds of products. Time and again, people talk about, oh, these products are, they're healthier for the environment, they're greener. But the reality is when you do a full life cycle analysis, uh, live animal production is a very efficient way to convert plants to meat. And uh, in Nebraska, we've been a state for over 150 years. We have, we have farms in the state that have been in families for more than seven generations. You can't possibly produce animals for seven generations if it's not done in a sustainable way. And so I, my frustration with the product line is more along the disparagement of what takes place with agricultural production. And frankly, I think it's a little bit deceiving in a lot of ways compared to what we have whether it's game animals or whether it's commercially raised animals, those animals are out there grazing pasture, they're, they're eating grain, and they have the opportunity to give us this wonderful, desirable eating experience if we'll respect and take care and manage those animals appropriately. That's, frankly, that's what my whole career has been about, is managing the product. Chris, thanks for coming on. It's, it's truly been a pleasure. I honestly appreciate so much the chance to talk about this. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, we have a lot of misconceptions going on out there, and uh, it's, uh, it's enjoyable for me to, to kind of explain and educate a little bit. So, Well, I, I'm going to warn you that I'm probably going to still traffic in misconceptions <laughs> because it's such, a, <laughs> it's such a big part of our lives to speculate about why things taste good and bad. But, uh, well, then we just need to call them again. <laughs> we'll build, up, we'll build up another list of things we've heard from people, and we'll come back and check with you. That'd be great. I'd be happy to visit. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. Thank Thanks. You. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. I've used that Sport Dog collar in different temperatures. It just doesn't stop working. Get 20% off your first purchase using code meat eater so go to www.sportdog.com slash meat eater to learn more this festival and concert season will be all about the boots and tacovas is your stop before attending your next concert all tacovas boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend 
Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable, they're very fashionable, and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go. Stop by your local Tacovas store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And find your new favorite pair of boots today. 